Okie dokie. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a rapid overview through uh, bleeding and the bleeding patient uh, so that hopefully um, with some aid memoirs um, it's literally just going to make it a little bit clearer. Now I put this up because I actually use this for um, our medical students. It's literally just a way of thinking about bleeding and how one approaches both the bleeder and the clotter. Um, in the, the, to coagulate you need this integral uh, juxtaposition of blood vessels, the coagulation cascade and platelets. And what you really need to think about is in various parts of the body each of these will be uh, dominant or, or not so dominant, not so preeminent if you like. So without blood vessel constriction in a large artery you're going to be dead whether you've got a platelet plug or a uh, coagulated platelet plug or not. And what we, what we like to think about is that actually the coagulation cascade, when you think about clotting, um, that's right at the far end. As we sort of cause trauma and produce very small amounts of thrombin, actually what happens is this little fellow, antithrombin, just quenches it. And all the time we've got our platelets forming a nice platelet plug, because there's no point in this being active straight away. And eventually antithrombin, being a lazy enzyme, gives up. And then we get this sudden burst of thrombin, and as a result we get fibrin, and then it can knit the platelets together. But likewise, if there are no platelets, if there's no cellular block, doesn't matter how good this is, the patient will bleed. So that's just my aid memoir, and I put all the sort of things which feed back to keep it all stable at, uh, at normal levels. So, I thought I'd go straight on to the iatrogenic bleeder. Um, I've borrowed this slide as you can see. Um, basically what it talks about is that we know there's a narrow therapeutic window for warfarin. Okay, Tim's already spoken about warfarin, it's not got the ideal situation, but it has been around for a long time. We've got a lot of experience of it. And what it shows is that as one increases the INR, we get an increase in the risk of bleeding, particularly intracranial bleeding. And we use various cutoffs to define as to how we deal with the INR or whether patients are bleeding or not. And we can see that stroke prevention here obviously doesn't increase, but it's this thing, the intracranial bleed, that we really worry about. And what makes it worse? Well, we know that the concomitant use of antiplatelet agents in addition to that increases the risk by 1.6% per year with a relative risk of intracranial bleeds at 2.4 compared to uh, warfarin monotherapy. The new oral anticoagulants or novel anticoagulants probably similar bleeding risk to warfarin but they're not really established long term. Some definitely at their differing doses probably don't have as much uh, bleeding risk associated with them but time will tell. So again when we combine these agents we know that there's a significant increase in the rate of bleeding and it's certainly with this combination really of clopidogrel and warfarin, certainly less so with warfarin and aspirin. Maybe it's to do with compliance, we don't know, because obviously one has to assume compliance. We've got a way of testing compliance clearly with warfarin, but not so easily with these drugs. Even if you do tests which you think will tell you, they don't necessarily predict whether they're going to have the actual effect that you're after or not. 
So what do we do when warfarin goes bad? What do we do when the INR goes high? If the patient is bleeding or not bleeding, well, you should already know this. But I'd like to point out it is in the BNF in different uh, guises. Previously, they've had a table, and now they put it in verbose format. I prefer the table myself. It's much easier to, to read. But essentially, we use... Uh, Clotting factor concentrate, APCC, for these life-threatening bleedings. Okay, so that's Beriplex or Octoplex. And if the patient is not bleeding, but at risk of bleeding, then we can give them low doses of vitamin K. So effectively, any bleeding that you're worried about, that, and it's certainly life-threatening, one should give a clotting factor concentrate. I've not mentioned FFP because clearly there are very few places now that would give FFP, you should give the clotting factor concentrate for various reasons. It, it takes time to thaw it out. Here it takes somewhere in the region about 20-25 minutes because we've got a rapid thaw. But nevertheless, you've got to thaw it out, you've got to request it, you've got to give the right amount. It's a high volume, it's very proteinaceous, and in the elderly, as you all know, whatever you put in excess into the intravascular space comes out through into the lungs. So, low molecular weight heparin. Well, it's said in the literature that it, major bleeding occurs in 1-4%. to I think if you look around, and certainly in the hospitals that you know, we've all worked in, I'd be, I'm surprised by that figure. I would have put it a lot less than that, but this is what the literature tells us. We know that there's this uh, compound protamine, which we use all the time in uh, cardiac bypass surgery, and we use it to reverse unfractionated heparin. But of course, with our increased use of clexane, how good is it with reversing clexane or the other low molecular weight heparins? Well, unfortunately, they're not all created equal, and it depends on how anionic they are to get the cationic anionic binding with protamine. And what it said is about 50% of the anti-10A effect can be neutralized by protamine, but this is in spiking studies where you're aiming for about a level of one anyway. So the more clexane that there is on board, you can't give more than about 50 milligrams of protamine anyway, except in the bypass surgery setting. Uh, and in that setting, you're not going to reverse. You're going to reverse about 50% of the clexane. The other thing to say about the anti-10A level is that certainly when you see patients who've overdosed on these drugs, the anti-10A level is not linear. Once it goes above 1.3, 1.4, it becomes very non-linear. So you can have a whole load on board, and yet the anti-10A level comes back as 2. And you think, well, that can't be right, because they, they put loads and loads in. So it certainly goes up like that. And how much you can reverse, really, is quite variable. But it's certainly worth giving it. And we do know that other low molecular weight heparins, for example, there's a better reversal with protamine. I wouldn't say that that would be one reason one should use to um, decide your low molecular weight heparins, because at the end of the day, there are very few times when we actually need to give the reversal agent, because it's not that common. So here we are now with the novel oral anticoagulants. Uh, they've been mentioned already, dibigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and doxaban. Uh, these are the ones which we've certainly had experience of. So there is no agent clinically proven to reverse. Okay, We know that, dibigatran or rivaroxaban. What's important is 
knowing when they've taken the drug. So it's quite clear that just treat, uh, discontinuation may well be um, effective. But we, I'll come on to that in the next slide. If you know that they've only taken it recently, activated charcoal is quite effective in um, reducing the absorption of these drugs. But certainly you should start with your usual ABC measures. Do the screens because, of course, these are to uh, varying degrees renally excreted. You obviously need to see what the blood count, for example, is. And yes, we do the clotting tests. I'll come on to those in a minute. Well, if you are lucky enough and you've got the bleeding um, under control, good. But what if it's not controlled? Well, you can use things like tranexamic acid, you can use prothrombin concentrate, you can use other things. So I'll come on to those in a moment. Now, as Tim has already said, dabigatran raises the APTT. Again, similarly to the low molecular weight heparin story, the effect is non-linear. So it kind of looks linear and then it starts tailing off. The only one where we see a linear effect is the echoing clotting time. And I doubt there are very few hospitals that can do the echoing clotting time. But the APTT seems to give us a reasonable judge. The, whereas rivaroxaban raises the PT. Now there are some specific anti-10A um, assays available. Um, Stego's just brought out one for rivaroxaban. Um, of course, you know, there's nothing at the moment that I know of um, in terms of dabigatran. And as I said here, you know, the tests are not proportionate. You need to obviously assess each patient on their merit. For sure, we can do these tests, and if they are not prolonged, you're probably okay. But the minute they start prolonging, or prolonging even more, you don't know how much for sure is on board. Now, when you develop the guidelines, you have to realize that in the very early stages of these drug developments, many of the patients um, were not your typical patients. They didn't have renal failure, they weren't obese, for example. So, you know, developing guidelines on bleeding has to come after the use of the drugs. As I said before, activated charcoal binds to both dabigatran and rivaroxaban, and therefore if you can get those in within a couple of hours, that's really good. Uh, they can be dialyzed off. And here, in vitro use of uh, dabigatran in rats and rabbits, um, both recombinant 7A and an APCC um, were effective. Uh, PCC effective in both dabigatran and rivaroxaban. However, um, one of my interests in the calibrated automated thrombogram, recombinant 7A fails to correct the CAT abnormality of the bigger trans. So this is about generating thrombin. We know that various anticoagulants will alter the way that you generate thrombin. So one of the things you can do is spike samples with these drugs to see whether it can make a change. The problem with many of the uh, studies looking at CAT and Novo7 is that you have to use a big, big dose of Novo7 to alter the CAT. So I take that with a slight pinch of salt. However, you do get partial correction with rivaroxaban, so it probably is a realized effect. But that just reinforces what myself and my colleagues feel about Novo7, is in this setting it probably is not the best drug. And really the SPC is very clear about Novo7, you should not be using it outside of its licensed uh, use, which is, of course, haemophilia with inhibitors. PCCs, however, didn't fare too much better with dabigatran, but does correct with rivaroxaban. Now, 
what it looks like is if you combine Nervo 7 with FIBA, which is factor VIII inhibitor bypassing activity, which is a kind of inactivated PCC, does correct the CAT abnormalities. So what should we do then? Well, quite clearly, PCCs or APCCs should be considered for life-threatening bleeding with either of the drugs. The best thing to do is to contact, therefore, the haematologist um, who will give you some idea. I doubt we will be going for the Novo 7. We would probably use an APCC. We probably would not use fresh frozen plasma. You'd have to give a very large uh, volume of FFP to get the measurable effect. So, rivaroxaban and dibigotran associated bleeding determine how long it is since the last dose. If it's less than two hours, give them um, activated charcoal. Start the standard resuscitation procedures for mild bleeding. You can just use tranexamic acid and obviously wait until giving the next dose. For moderately severe, you could consider using FFP. You could give platelets as well. The reason why we say platelets is because dibigotran has an anti-thrombin effect. Thrombin is quite crucial for activating platelets. So if you've got platelet-type bleeding, then if you, give plate, if you give platelet transfusions, particularly if they're thrombocytopenic as well, that can be of benefit. And of course, to stabilize the clot, tranexamic acid. But you consider a PCC, whereas here, moderate severe, you go straight for a PCC, and you could consider dialysis. We do know that they can be dialyzed off. And what you do need to do, certainly in your, your area, is keep a careful record of the patients who bleed and what you've done about it. There is an antidote in development. I'm sorry I wasn't here earlier. I presume that may well have been uh, mentioned. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to, the, to people who are born to bleed. And what I wanted to quickly talk to you about is a kind of a, just an overview of von Willebrand's. Now, this is acute medicine, so I am clearly talking to the converted. However, um, Tim and I and my haematology colleagues, um, we want to always try and help you with patients who've got von Willebrand's disease because we do hear stories. I, I told them I had a green card. They didn't listen to me. They discharged me. And unfortunately, those are the ones which we hear. So if I can help to stimulate some you know, knowledge and uh, interest in von Willebrand's disease, that's great. Um, certainly, what we do know, it is the most common quantitative platelet-type bleeding that we have. Now, think back to our Venn diagram, and basically the... What we're trying to say there is that thrombocytopenia does tend to cause typical bleeding in typical sites. So it's the mucosal associated bleeding where blood vessels cannot constrict or where the pressure is so high that what you need is a physical obstruction and that's a platelet plug. So if you can't form a platelet plug, you can bleed in those areas. So everybody picks their nose, causes trauma, epistaxis can uh, result from that. They bleed prolongedly from clots from cuts. All you need there really is a small platelet plug. It doesn't necessarily need to be stabilized. They get post-operative bleeding. They get easy bruising. And when they do bruise, they describe these very large bruises, often greater than five centimeters in diameter. Not necessarily in strange areas, but sometimes in odd places. Uh, uh, heavy menstrual bleeding is not predictive, but it is quite frequent when uh, ladies come in with von Willebrand's that that's one of the symptoms they, they described. 
Peripartum bleeding is not predictive. So if you see lots of patients who've got peripartum bleeding, it doesn't appear to be that more of them have von Willebrand's disease than uh, other causes of peripartum bleeding. And most, of course, as you know, will have a normal full blood care, a normal prothrombin time, and a normal APTT. The reason being that these reagents particularly the APTT, will only detect if the factor VIII level often is less than about 30%. Now, most patients of von Willebrand's disease are mild, and they can bleed quite a lot, but their APTT is often quite normal. And this is how the von Willebrand works, okay? So it adheres to the endothelium and exposed collagen through the GP1B receptors, and that causes an induction of the GP2B3A receptors, which then facilitates von Willebrand binding between the platelets. So adhesion and aggregation. So patients with von Willebrand's disease, they should carry a normal card, okay, a green card. So that's not to be ignored, and that will have salient information on it. Who is their physician? What are their levels? What do you do in the setting of bleeding? What we're using more of now is subcut desmopressin. So no, no longer do we see the infusion-related problems of intravenous desmopressin. We can give it subcutaneously instead. And also a nasal spray is available. So it is worthwhile diagnosing these patients. We've got a number of uh, ladies who have either recurrent nosebleeds or have very heavy, heavy menstrual bleeding. And they can use desmopressin subcutaneously or through nasal spray on the first day of their period. It cuts down the amount of bleeding. They can use it again 48, 72 hours later. Uh, it's very effective in those patients. You have to pick the right patient, obviously, but it is very effective. It's also very useful in kids as well. The uh, Great Ormond Street have a lot of experience of using nasal spray Optim in von Willebrand children. Uh, we can use tranexamic acid. Uh, okay, we can give that either uh, by mouth in tablet form, we can give it in a liquid form. The other thing is that sometimes if they've got quite a nasty abrasion, you can soak the dressing in tranexamic acid and it works locally. So that's something to think of as well. And epistaxis, you can soak the pack in tranexamic acid. Okay, there are some where, where you know you can drip fluid on which expands the, uh, the uh, dressing and soak it in some tranexamic acid and clearly avoid all of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Right, so moving on then. Um, this is a particular patient uh, uh, diagnosed reasonably recently. You can see, this is what I'm talking about, about ecchymoses. Uh, there's a lot of um, bleeding within the skin there. What you can't see is the big bruise that he had around his back. He probably lost about three or four units of blood into his subcutaneous tissue. Now in this situation, when you see a patient like that, this is going to give you the answer quite clearly, one would hope. And lo and behold, in this case, it was acquired haemophilia. Now, the reason why I'm highlighting it to you is because we see about two or four cases of these per year in Dareford. And we serve a population of just under 500,000. Yet it's said to be in one in two million. I think as we get better at diagnosing patients with coagulation problems, uh, we see more of these. And certainly, when you know what the risk factors for the development of acquired haemophilia are, you know, certainly malignancies, infections, uh, and pregnancy, um, that's why we see far more. Um, and uh, this particular case was associated with, uh, with cancer. 
and we treated it with immunosuppression and uh, with factor VIII inhibitor <coughs> bypassing activity. So most of the ones we which we've seen here over the last few years, they've come through ENT with quite major um, upper airway obstructive type bleeding through the general medics with easy bruising um, or referral from oncology or from compartment syndrome through the plastic surgeons. And it is a, it is a hematological emergency, as you can imagine. Uh, at least half a dozen of patients through ENT that I've seen, they've almost lost their airways with the um, degree of bleeding in the pharynx that they've had. And certainly, well, the last compartment syndrome we had, he was very lucky. We had really good plastic surgeons that were able to open up the forearm uh, and, uh, and salvage his arm. Uh, it looks really good now. They've done a fantastic job. But it is an emergency, so you do need to know what it looks like. But doing those tests will highlight the problem. And doing them and then looking them up also helps. So, and now moving further on to a multi-system problem. The kidneys, the brains, the guts have gone as well. Oh dear. Well, here we have this sort of multitude of sins, a cluster of differential diagnoses of the thrombotic microangiopathies. Okay, so um, when you have patients with these kind of, you know, is it TTP, is it HUS, is it atypical HUS? So these have a hemolytic anemia, so there's microangiopathy, they have low platelets, and they have a varying degree of either CNS or renal features, which helps you to kind of decide which one of these it is. Now the the atypical HUS, I'm not sure if you've had that already, but that's basically an inheritable complement defect. Whereas TTP is autoantibody, so this is an autoantibody disease. And the vast majority it's idiopathic or it could be secondary to any number of secondary effects. And it is quite catastrophic TTP. But it's been made more difficult because we're now recognizing that atypical HUS and HUS are a little bit more common. Okay, And the way that we can distinguish is on the basis of is it more neurological, is it more renal, is it more gastroenterological. And now we can send for tests specifically to elucidate which one of these it is. So atypical HUS is about 1 in 500,000 which is a tenth of the cases of HUS. And TTP is up to 4 per million per year with a peak age between 30 and 60. And the way that it can be diagnosed is through the Adams TS13 level. Basically, that's a cleaving protein for von Willebrand factor. And we can specifically look for the antibodies. But they have to go up to UCH and they have to get up there within four hours. Okay, I've got a couple minutes here. Yeah? Couple of minutes. So, just a quick word then about low platelets. Um, basically, again, thinking about my Venn diagram, otherwise well. Okay, so these patients may well have ITP, immune thrombocytopenia, hypersplenism, don't forget B12 or folate deficiency. If they're unwell, then it could be a thrombotic microangiopathy, sepsis, DIC, is it congenital? Okay, infection with consumption, young and old. The reason why I put that in is because we often get called for patients who are elderly and all they have is they have a low platelet count. Their clotting may well not be completely off. Okay, they may well have just a little bit of an elevation of their D-dimer. But it seems to be that the old and young bone marrow cannot necessarily cope 
with consumption very well and they can drop their plate quite uh, readily. Could be iatrogenic, thinking about drugs, on bypass, on balloon pump, or one of the causes of bone marrow failure. So I'm not going to skip through, I'm going to skip through PNH. So I'm going to take you back now to the Thomas Venn diagram. So thinking about why patients bleed. Is it related to a blood vessel problem? Related to the surgeon not wanting to be able to uh, tie that vessel off? Is it related to the platelet plug that needs stabilization by the coagulation cascade? And I will stop there. And any questions? Thank you. I forgot to say that